Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC 10X podcast and today we have John Bailey with us. John is a co-founder at OneFund where they are increasing access to alternative asset classes. In this episode, we talk about how OneFund got started making venture capital and private equity a more accessible asset class, increasing awareness about PE and VC investing, how investing at OneFund works, what is private equity and the different stages of it, what are the return expectations in private equity and VC investing and a lot more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey, John, so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, Prashant. Great to talk to you. Like I said earlier, I've been listening to your podcast uh, all week, and I'm really excited to be talking to you. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. I uh, went through one, uh, one fund investment, and it's, uh, again, something pretty cool that's happening in the industry and something that's very needed. So uh, before we get deeper into it, uh, can we have your story and why you started one fund investments? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, b- before before we dive in, I guess I'll just plug some of the other episodes that you've had. I saw, you know, you interviewed Daryl Freider and, and Jason Kirby, both people that I've talked to and uh, really great listens. So so people should should check those out and I'll, I'll plug those guys stuff. Um, but yeah, so I, I started one point investments with my co-founder um, quite recently within the last year. Actually, I spent the first uh, few years of my career at General Atlantic, which is a, a pretty large growth equity fund based in the US, but they invest globally. Um, and while I was there, I think you just, you know, I got really exposed to the amazing benefits that private equity and venture capital can offer to investors. Um, and you know what I mean by that is like just generally historically really strong returns, right? Uh, adds a lot of diversification to a portfolio. You know, if you think about it, the, the majority of U.S. companies are privately held, right? So most everyday investors, if they're investing purely in public equities, you can have as diversified a portfolio of public equities if as you want, and you're still not exposed, have no exposure to, you know, and by some measures over half the economy, which is privately held, which is just kind of really interesting and mind boggling to me. Um, and then additionally, you know, the stability of the asset class, I, I think is really strong. And, and a little bit of that, I think can come down to, you know, oh, some discussions around, hey, it's only marked once per quarter, but at the end of the day, when you look at valuations of privately held companies, they're more stable and less volatile over time. Um, so yeah, just seeing sort of these fantastic benefits that it can offer and then realizing, well, almost everybody who's invested in this asset class, right, is a very wealthy institution uh, or high net worth individual, right? Um, it's a lot of university endowments. It's a lot of, uh, you know, people who who made their significant amount of money through real estate or founding other companies. Um, and as somebody who worked at one of these funds who was relatively knowledgeable, I was started looking like, hey, well, how can I get invested? Um, and realized it really wasn't possible for somebody like me to invest into uh, top tier funds and started looking around and wasn't totally satisfied with some of the options that were out there. And we can talk about how the industry at large has because uh, there has been some attempts to solve this, right? There have been some attempts to, okay, how do we take private equity and venture capital and make it more accessible to to more investors, in most cases, accredited investors? But just kind of looking around, a lot of the options didn't really appeal to me. <clears throat> so I started talking with uh, a buddy of mine who's now my co-founder, Spencer Moslow, 
Um, and he was the former co-head of investor relations at a hedge fund. And we were both sort of like, yeah, like this, this is a real, like he immediately got it right. And was like, yeah, this is definitely a real thing. Like I can't invest, you know, he's the co-head of investor relations and he couldn't invest in a lot of different alternative assets. Um, and we kind of started, you know, in the early stages of market validation and, and felt that we were onto something and, and, and got it's got started down this journey. Um, of building one fund, which is really a, a marketplace with the goal of connecting top tier G, uh, general partners, PE and VC funds, with accredited investors who want access to them. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said, it's like a very restricted uh, kind of asset class that a lot of, a lot of people who want access, or maybe even uh, talking uh, before that, like a lot of people are not even aware that uh, this asset class actually exists and this offers better returns uh, than the traditional asset classes so are you doing something to increase that awareness and then put this offering in front of them yeah i i think that that's definitely one of the challenges in the industry in general right p and vc investing while it can be very uh you know beneficial for those who are invested in it it, it behaves very very differently to uh to public equities right there's lower liquidity there are capital calls the return profiles look extraordinarily different, right? Most VCs might make an investment and it might the valuation might hold flat for over a year until there's the next the next funding round, right? Um, and if people aren't aware of that, it can be confusing, it can be frustrating. Um, and so a lot of what we're trying to do is around education. Um, whether it's, you know, we've had interviews with a lot of really great VCs talking about what they do and their their VC funds and how they invest. Excuse me, it's uh, cold here in Philadelphia right now. Um, and then, additionally, we've had uh, trying to do like you know, McKinsey, Bain, Fidelity put out these amazing reports every year that are like eighty five pages long. Right, like nobody's reading that unless you're very involved in the industry. So we try to sort of like condense it down. And say, hey, here's what you know McKinsey thinks about the private equity market. Uh, you know, for 2022, here's some of their lookouts they're concerned about. Here's some of the things that they're excited about, um, and try to be very transparent. I think of taking some of these, you know, really amazing uh, companies and research that they do, and distilling it down, making it a little bit more digestible. And we're definitely going to be trying to do more of that going forward, right? Uh, just giving people general information about how this space works. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll continue to develop that there, but I think it's been really well received, um, and, and just generally really helpful to people. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, talking about increasing access, one more aspect, uh, to increasing this access can be that to get into this asset class, it usually requires that you invest a big amount of money at once, uh, into a VC class or maybe a private equity firm. Uh, is that also a problem that you're trying to solve so that we can get more people to invest in this asset class by reducing that threshold? Yeah, th that's a really, really critical problem. And honestly, one of the biggest impediments, right? There are other impediments that you do need to streamline from a technological standpoint, like ease of the subscription process. And by that, I mean, when you find a fund you actually want to invest in, how do you make that process smooth for a retail customer. And so there's a technological component that you have to solve. Um, but that minimum check size is enormous. I'll tell a kind, you know, a kind of like funny story when I think I realized that we were potentially onto something here. I was talking with a 
uh, you know, a senior uh, MD working in investor relations at a large at a large PE fund, and they had you know something like a ten million dollar minimum investment requirement, which is huge, right? Unless you have hundreds of millions of dollars, it doesn't make sense to really invest in that. And I was telling him about what we were thinking about and the problem we were looking at, and he was like, "Oh, you know, we're going to try to move retail too." we're cutting our minimum investment from $10 million to $5 million. And I was like, okay, like that, like that's great, but $5 million is not exactly like retail accessible, right? Uh, okay, great. Now, instead of having to have a hundred billion dollars to invest, I only need to have 50. Um, it's not, it doesn't really like move the needle for most people. Um, which, so I think it was like very validating that, Hey, the desire is there from a lot of top funds, I think, to take more retail investors or make their returns accessible to more people. But honestly, they shouldn't be building out the tech platform that's needed to do that, right? I, I have a strong belief that PE and VC funds can only be great investors if they're spending the majority of their effort investing. Um, and just the the requirements to build out a tech fl- platform like that, it, it just really wouldn't make sense for them when you think about like how the industry as a whole has worked around solving this, uh, you know, minimum, this, these like high minimum investment requirements that are, that are needed in the industry. <clears throat> I, I think there's really been three approaches to it. The, the first is sort of the, you know, direct investing, whether it's the angel list or the Republic model where an accredited investor who wants to put, you know, five, ten, a hundred thousand dollars into like the venture capital asset class can go on to AngelList and either go join a syndicate or pick individual startups that they want to invest in. And I think that that model is is really interesting, but some of the disadvantages to that is honestly speaking, most people should not be picking, probably should not be picking the individual startups that they want to invest in. Um, it just gets very messy, right? You need a lot of time to appropriately due diligence. Um, you honestly, it's helpful to have a lot of experience as well. Um, and, and it just sort of like compounds the risk factor there at the early stage. And you're not as diversified, you know, you, you just won't have access to as many deals, um, as you would if you were investing in a fund. And then there's been some really interesting, like industry developments around, um, some VC funds that are structured differently so that they can accept lower minimum investments. Like they are basically building out that tech platform, right? Um, and, and some of them go quite low in terms of the minimums that that they'll accept, uh, you know, like three digits, you know, like in the hundreds of dollars even. And I think that that's fantastic. But some of the, some of the you know, obstacles or hurdles there is that a lot of these VC funds have no track record, right? They're brand new. They've kind of just sprung up. So they don't have a history of investing that you can look at to see what their historical returns look like. Um, and you're also limited to one mandate, right? You're, you're only investing in, in one fund and one particular VC fund, not one fund the name of our company. Um, you're just investing in one particular VC fund, um, you know, which is great if you're worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and you can invest in, you know, five different funds with, different mandates and investing in different geographies at different points in the private company life cycle. Um, but you know, when, when you're limited to this universe of just the few, uh, VC funds that are out there that are accepting early stage investments, 
it, it's a little bit more limiting. And then also you fundamentally just don't have access to, um, you know, larger scale private equity buyout credit, the whole other suite of alternative investments that we haven't even, you know, really scratched the surface on. But I think this this third model that, that we're pursuing that I think is a, a bit, you know, quite interesting is this idea of building a marketplace, right? Where existing, you know, VC and P funds that have track records, you partner with them to go on your marketplace um, where your members can find them and select which offerings they, they are interested in. Um, and that way, I think there's a little bit, you know, when you're investing in existing PE and VC funds, there's a little bit more peace of mind of, hey, I know where, um, you know, I, I know what they've invested in in the past. I know that they have a track record um, and I know, you know, what their strategy is, how well they stick to it, et cetera. Um, and, and there's a lot of benefits there, in my opinion. Right, absolutely. And these people who are investing in these VC funds uh, on the one fund platform, are, are, are these going in as uh, single entities uh, on the table of these VC funds? Or are they going in as uh, as the name of one fund, wherein all the people who are interested to invest in that VC fund are grouped together as a single entity, and then they're investing in that VC fund? So how does that work? So yeah, so that that's a good question. So on on our platform, and this is part of how we're able to appeal, I think, to GPs, is that one fund investments operates for our GP partners as a totally uh, normal limited partner. Um, so one fund investments becomes the limited partner into the the GP into the the VC or the private equity fund. And then our members um, invest in, you know, our our independent funds. Um, and so part of the appeal of what we're trying to bring to GPs, right, is we go to GPs and we say, hey, we bring you completely incremental capital that you wouldn't otherwise have had access to. Um, it doesn't cannibalize your existing fundraising efforts because of the type of people who are using our platform. And we're no additional effort for you than any other uh, limited partner or investor in your fund would be. And I, I think when you combine that with the fact that there is a good mission behind this, right? Like it is a story that people feel good about, right? Like I think in general, if you go to like most top tier VCs and you say, hey, wouldn't you like more, you know, everyday type people to have access to your funds? Most of them would say yes, right? But they just don't want to deal with the hassle of it. So the fact that we're able to make that hassle-free for them, I think the the mission has also been quite appealing. Yeah, it it, uh, it seems like uh, kind of kind of following uh, an angel syndicate model that is applied to the VC firm model, wherein all, all these individuals come together and uh, under a single name uh, they're investing uh, into a VC fund. Now, uh, and on the angel syndicate they're investing in startups, but here they're investing in a VC fund, right? Is that a good comparison? I, I think that's a great comparison. We're kind of building an angel list of for VC and PE funds in particular. Um, and, and what becomes really interesting, I think, about just the broader industry as a whole, right, is so often I think the conversation focuses around VC and to a certain extent PE because I, I think like they're they're sexy, right? They're like the most coveted asset class. But there, there are so many alternative investments out there that are really important towards the 
for a diversified portfolio, whether you're talking about credit, um, infrastructure, um, you know, growth equity, we mentioned a little bit, which is kind of the, the lesser known brother of, of PE and VC, but kind of equally important to that diversified alternatives portfolio. And, you know, we have the ability if we want to, to do all of that, the way that, the way that we're building this, um, you know, Fidelity's put out some really interesting research recently that kind of shows like for a, like as part of like a, a multi-asset class portfolio that somebody might have, right? Like stock bonds, maybe you have a little bit of real estate. If you're able to add alternative investments into that, um, it actually, like it has a fairly, you know, significant increase on your risk adjusted returns, right? So this like ability that like, hey, if you're able to add in alternative assets um, and different alternative asset classes to get your portfolio as diversified as possible, you actually have higher risk adjusted returns, which is like insanely powerful, right? Like that's what everybody is chasing um, in, in finance. Um, and I think up until, you know, fairly recently, and a lot of the changes that have been happening in the past couple of years, that has really been reserved for, like we mentioned earlier, very wealthy, uh, institutions and, and individuals, you know, I think most, uh, you know, university endowments, like the university of Texas endowment or Harvard endowment have like 15 to 20% of their assets in private equity and venture capital, you know, perennially. Um, and, and I think that, you know, these like very, very large multi-billion dollar institutions have figured out that, Hey, this is a way for us to, uh, raise, you know, build the nest egg for the university. Um, I think it's very exciting that we're approaching a point in time where, uh, increasingly accredited investors, uh, more retail investors have access to this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, we talk a lot about uh, the venture capital asset class on this uh, on this podcast. And uh, one asset class that we don't talk about is is the private e- e- equity asset class. And I know that a venture capital is actually a part of uh, the private equity asset class, uh, but private e- equity is just a broader uh, asset class. And uh, it, it goes a lot beyond because venture is mostly focused on early stage investing. And uh, private equity goes much beyond that. Uh, so, can you throw some perspective into the private equity asset class and what are the return expectations and when it actually comes into the picture, at what stage in the company? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a, a great question. I think a lot of the times people don't, to to your point, don't realize that venture capital actually kind of falls under this broader umbrella of private equity. And a lot of times, people who work in what we call like buyouts, which would be sort of like late stage private equity. They just call it private equity, even though it's really like this pocket underneath this private equity umbrella. So there's really kind of like three stages to private equity. And all all it means when we say private equity, right, is it is companies who buy equity in privately held companies. And that can be at any stage in their in their life cycle. So venture capital is, you know, sort of like your pre-seed to and these are kind of loose boundaries. There's obviously everything kind of bleeds over and the devil gets in the details, but Venture capital, you know, you're talking like pre-seed to sort of like Series A, maybe Series B, and and these are people who are investing in you know high growth, scalable companies. Venture capitalists are are, are looking for companies that they think are going to be the next Facebook, right? The next Snowflake, um, the the next Microsoft. They're trying to find companies that they think have great teams, good growth potential. Um, 
and, and, and maybe they haven't even found product market fit yet. Maybe they just have like an amazing technology and they're trying to figure out a way to leverage it. And the typical strategy of VCs are to place a lot of small bets, right? You, you want to have, because there's a very good chance at the pre-seed to series A stage that a company could go under. So you want to have as many bets as you can. Um, and this is another point to what I was talking about earlier with AngelList, right? Like if you're investing individually into startups, that's fantastic. But unless you have the experience and the time, um, you really need to make a lot of bets to try to have a, a well-diversified basket. And like we're talking dozens and dozens, even hundreds in the case of the many VC funds. And they're betting that, you know, a handful of their companies will, will, will launch off and become unicorns. And that's where they derive the majority of their um, returns from, typically. And, and then you have kind of like growth equity. Um, and, and growth equity kind of sits in this like interesting spot between venture capital and, and bio private equity. Um, and they're typically buying General Atlantic. The company I used to work at it is a you know one of the larger growth equity shops. There's also you know Insight Partners as well, and, and a few others. Um, and, and they're trying to buy you know kind of like post VC once the company's matured and scaled too much for a VC to be interested in. They're going in and typically making like minority investments. They're buying you know 10, 20, 30, 40 percent of the company. Um, and trying to really accelerate growth, right? They're interested, as the name might imply, high growth companies with top line growing 20, 30, 40% a year typically. Um, and they're really trying to take that company from a point where it has product market fit, really strong sense of who they are, and trying to scale that as quickly as they can, whether that's through international expansion, building out additional products, et cetera. You know, they're trying to take your, you know, 20 million ARR company and turn it into a 200 million ARR company. Um, and, and their investments are typically a little bit more stable than VC, right? Because you're, you're building off of a more stable base, right? VC fund might be investing in a company that has $200,000 of ARR, you know, growth equity is coming in at like 20 million, right? So typically there's lower loss ratios and growth. It's a little bit safer, um, a little bit more stable. Um, and, and has a little bit less variance. And then after after growth equity, then you go into like that buyout private equity, right? And this is where I think a lot of the names like come by people like KKR, Apollo, Carlisle, TPG, Blackstone, right? Like all those big dogs that like people read about in the journal constantly. Um, and, and they're buying out entire companies, typically very mature companies that aren't growing as much. Um, and they are typically buying up the entire company, often using debt, um, and then leveraging that um, to generate a return for their investors. Um, so all of these are happening at like different stages of a company's life cycle, um, and, and all of them have slightly different strategies and return profiles. And I think all of them are quite important to having a diversified private market portfolio as an investor. Yeah, absolutely. Loved how you put it uh, across different stages of private equity. Uh, and uh, like you just mentioned, that uh, you should not really have all your eggs in one basket when it comes especially to the venture capital asset class. So uh, for investors who want to invest, uh, let's say, on one fund uh, into these different venture funds, then what do you think would be the ideal diversification rate for them? Let's say they want to deploy $100,000 into different uh, venture capital funds uh, or basically in this asset class. 
then h- how do you think they should divide up? Uh, should they invest 5% in each uh, firm that they invest in or should should they go uh, more finer and maybe 2 to 3% or maybe bigger than 10% or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to... I'm going to try to refrain from giving uh, investment advice uh, on the podcast, but what I will say is that I think generally speaking for people who don't have any access to alternatives, if you're getting into a diversified fund with a track record, it's generally better than having no stake in any fund at all right by investing in a fund with a track record you're kind of immediately getting access to typically you know dozens of companies that that fund is investing in so you're already in a diversified state i think previously to what i said i kind of encourage people to try to invest where possible along the life cycle right venture growth uh buyouts um and, and making sure that you're trying to get as much exposure across that life cycle as you can um, and, and the last thing that I'd say is that I think it's really important for people to keep in mind, regardless of where they're investing in private markets, that these investments are kind of, as I mentioned earlier, are very different than public equities. They're typically not as liquid. Um, you can't sell them as easily. They have a lumpy return profile. And what I mean by that is like you might go from year one to year two with the fund reporting like 3% returns. But that's because unless the company that they invest in takes another investment, sometimes they won't even mark their investment up, right? So you could go from year one to year two with like 2% returns. And then all of a sudden at year three, it could shoot up to like, you know, 50% or something like that. So it, it, it's weird. And I think people should be aware of that when they go in. Um, but also because of this liquidity, you, people really shouldn't invest money into private equity or venture capital that they think there's any chance that they're going to need in the next, you know, five, 10 years or, or the life cycle of the fund. Um, and there are some interesting ways that people are thinking about solving that, but to be honest, they're all imperfect. Um, and, and typically you don't get your full value as a customer, as an investor, when you do try to get liquidity in these funds. So I think really like you shouldn't invest any money in these funds that you think you're going to need over the the lifetime of the fund, which is really important. And that's why endowments, right? Even though these returns are so good, like I said earlier, they're still only investing, you know, maybe 15 to 20% because they, they know that. And obviously there are outliers, but they recognize that it's a longer term uh, investment. They can't get their money out whenever they need it, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's one more thing that people need to be aware of before investing in this asset class. Also, uh, the past two years have been kind of uh, bumpy for the for this asset class in particular, the venture capital industry, wherein the valuations are not going up anymore and there are down rounds happening. And so it's kind of uh, not what we used to see the years before that, right? So how do you look that impacting uh, this market right now and the investor interest it gets? This is a really, really interesting topic and I've been thinking about it for a while. And, and you said perfectly right like you go seven years back the past seven years money was cheap people particularly buyout could get debt for pennies on the dollar or for for nothing basically go out and buy a company super easy to make the leverage buyout model work right vc you just had multiples continuing to climb um fundamentals could stay relatively flat and all of a sudden you have a company that's way more valuable right 
Um, and, and for listeners, what I mean by multiple is the sort of the, the price that you pay for the company, right? So if a company has a million dollars in revenue and they have a 5X multiple, you pay $5 million for the company. Well, if it has a million dollars in revenue the next year, but because of markets, the price, the multiple has gone to 6X, all of a sudden that company could be worth $6 million. Um, and so you just had multiples climbing, you had low debt, and that's a very nice environment for, for private market investors typically. Um, obviously that could change, right? Prices for, for private companies have come down a lot. You have debt going up. Um, and I think that makes it even more important than ever to be investing in funds that have track records, hopefully funds that have been through previous down cycles before. So like the most recent ones that come to mind, right, being 2008, 2001. Um, and obviously, it, it, you know, it's difficult. You can't predict what's going to happen in the, in the future, and I'm not going to do that. But And history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, right? And when you look back at previous cycles of, you know, what vintages performed best in private markets, it's 2001 and it's 2009 to 2010. Um, because at those points in time, right after the crashes, you had uh, much lower prices for a lot of these assets. And these are long-term vehicles, right? So when these investors are looking at these products, it's not, hey, what is the market going to look like one year or two years from now? But really, like, what does this company's prospects look like seven years from now? Um, and the economy is going to be in a very different place in, in 2029 than it is in 2022. Um, but I, I think to your point around, you know, pricing is very different, right? Multiples have come down. One thing that we look for when we're talking with general partners, and I think it's really important, is, is do they have a, an operating team or a value creation team or whatever they, whatever they choose to call it, um, this is actually the team that I was on when I was at General Atlantic. But basically, like, do these VC and PE funds have a team that isn't just about like deploying capital? Because I think deploying capital can become commoditized. But do they have a team that's you know built up of like former industry executives, um, consultants, operators, people who can help the company uh, that they invest in, uh, you know? Uh, improve its supply chain efficiency, optimize its marketing strategy, um, develop data analytics, um, some really powerful tools that they can leverage, especially in the VC and growth stage, where a lot of these companies are less mature, right? And if you have, you know, an investor coming in who has, you know, 100 portfolio companies, they can leverage the fact that they have more economies of scale than their portfolio companies do to provide assistance on, like I said before, things like marketing, um, pricing, data science, supply chain, sales. Um, so I think it's it's helpful to look at do VC and PE funds try to add value to their companies in ways other than merely giving capital. A lot of funds claim to do that. Few funds actually do. And the ones that do, I think, have a, a definitive advantage. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And uh, besides, I want to talk about one fund. So what's the status uh, on one fund right now? Is it already live? Uh, and uh, are we already onboarding GPs and funds are being raised? And are we on onboarding LPs on the side of uh, individual retail investors? So what's happening there? Yeah. No, I, I love that you asked that question. I get so caught up. I think sometimes like talking about the industry and stuff, I forget to uh, to talk about where, where we are. So 
We are in the process of closing our pre-seed round right now. Um, I'll keep the, the details of that quiet for now, just because it's in the process of closing. Um, but we'll, we'll have some exciting info to share on that soon. Um, and then we're going to be launching our product. Uh, it probably will have launched by the time this podcast comes out. Very exciting. We're doing a private launch with uh, some of our early members um, before we do a before we do a broader launch. Um, we have a bunch of great GPs that that we partnered with um, that we're really really excited about, um, and it's been a, a really really great process getting to this point. Um, and yeah, so we're, we're going to be we're going to be in market very very soon, and it's very exciting. And if people want to learn more about what we're doing, they can. Uh, go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, check out some of the, you know, educational material that we talked about earlier, kind of talking about the markets and all that stuff um, at onefundinvestments.com. Awesome. Uh, I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes below uh, so that analysts can get there easily. Uh, and I believe that uh, the product will be very much out by the time this episode is out. So the links will be there in the show notes. You can go check it, check them out. And uh, great, uh, John, it was a pleasure hosting you. And I love the things that you're building and the insights that you shared uh, overall in the industry and the product that you're building. Pretty amazing and pretty uh, pumped for what you're building at OneFun. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, happy journey ahead with OneFun. Thanks, Prashant. Mm-hmm.